Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our June 2nd, 2011 edition of the show, 4.08 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. It's easy to get discouraged when contemplating some of the gross injustices being perpetrated by the corporate behemoths of our era. However, it can be just as simple to become inspired or be an inspiration to do something about it once we set aside our fear of being perceived as uppity or unreasonable or going to jail. A stellar example of this is Diane Wilson. We're going to be talking to her today about her new book, Diary of an Eco-Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. Diane Wilson, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm real glad to be here. Uh, It's great to have you. I've been enjoying reading the book. It's been an inspiration to me, and you have a a wonderful writing style that is very engaging and just very honest and real. Well, thank you very much. I am very self-taught here. Yeah, and it, and it comes through, and I mean that in in the best of uh, sense of that. Well, uh, I, I I take it that way. Thank you. And so let's um. Wow, how did you become a, an eco outlaw? I mean, there isn't a standard career path for this. And, no, and <laughs> no, 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 there wasn't, and there was no plan for it. And and like I always say, is when I w- first started being called a. Uh, an activist and an environmentalist, I really, uh, I, I thought that was kind of a professional title, and I wasn't really sure what it was, and I had to look it up in the dictionary to even find out what I was being called, because, you know, I was, I had been a fisherman my whole life. I've been on the water since I was eight, a boat. Uh, I was a sea captain when I was, by the time I was 24, I'd been running a boat taking care of a pile of kids, living way out in the marshes and in a very isolated part of the Texas Gulf Coast. And uh, I actually had never spoken in a meeting. I did not like talking. I'm a little, a tiny bit antisocial. You know, that's probably why I was such a good shrimper out there on the bay. And uh, when the first toxic release inventory ever came out, that's where industry had to report the remissions for the first time ever in the United States, and uh, and there was a uh, shrimping was so bad I had tied up my shrimp boat and I was running a fish house and I had this shrimper who had three different types of cancer and he had lumps, big lumps all over his arms and he pitched me this article and it was an Associated Press story and it was the first time an article had been written about the amount of pollution coming out of each specific chemical plant, and lo and behold, my county, the entire county wasn't 15,000 people in the entire place, and we weren't number one in the nation, and as a matter of fact, we had half the toxic waste that was generated in the whole state of Texas, we had it. 
and uh, that piece of information just nearly knocked me out of that little chair I was sitting in at the fish house, and I I acted totally out of character. I, I did something I had never did before, and I was not inclined to do, and all I did was uh, pick up the fish house phone and call City Hall and say, uh, I want to have a meeting there in City Hall about about this article and about this pollution, and I guarantee you, I got a backlash from that that uh, nearly knocked me off my chair again, and it it had totally uh, bewildered me that people, elected officials, uh, people that should be concerned about pollution, all they wanted me to do was shut up be quiet. They told me to be a good citizen and, and just drop the whole issue. And I had uh, the bank president in a three-piece suit show up at Fish House, and he said I was starting a vigilante group, fixing the roast industry alive. <laughs> I had the city secretary. I had chamber of commerce. I had economic development. And pretty much they just told me to shut up. And, and, this, and what year was this? This was 1989. 1989. And so you, you'd been involved in uh, making a, a living out, out of the bay there? and uh, as a, My whole life. Yeah. My, my whole life. And uh, matter of fact, I'm fourth generation, so, and my family uh, is probably about six, seven generations here. And we've been in this little little part of the Texas Gulf Coast over a hundred years fishing. And... This is the first time, and I was, I'm what you call a real late bloomer. I was 40 years old when I first uh, said the first word in a meeting. And so, yeah, the, the, you, you had been a, a, uh, a shrimper, and you had run this fish house, and there were starting to be real problems with the, the industry of shrimp and, and fish and uh, problems with the bay, and then there were, this report came out on the pollution, and, and so something kicked in in you, and you decided, uh, somebody who had just been kind of minding her own business and doing her thing and preferring the quiet out on the bay uh, on the shrimp boat and all that, but something kicked in, and you decided I've got to do something about this I've got to speak up and uh, there's I don't know if there's a couple of things going on one a kind of cultural thing where you're expected to kind of just uh, keep quiet about things and not not challenge the the uh, authorities and uh, then oh, uh, yeah. yeah yeah you know like this is down south and and, and real real big on being polite and uh, not being too disruptive to people and especially if you're a woman and I know when I started my, my, you know, just having a meeting was the first thing I did. You know, it wasn't just an environmental issue. It became an issue of that I was a uppity woman. I was out front, a woman out front. And then the fact that I was a fisherwoman. And it was like, you know, all of these officials, they were looking at me, and it's like, now who in the Sam Hill is this fisherwoman being out front asking that? Matter of fact, they could not believe I really was who I was. They thought, well, maybe there was some lawyer out of Houston that was putting her up to it. Or then they thought maybe a spy, I was a spy hired by the state of Louisiana to kick this, uh, this huge uh, project that was fixing to come to Texas to get it kicked out of uh, Texas so it would go to Louisiana. They really did. They thought I was a hard spy. They couldn't believe I was actually 
what I said I was. And just doing this out of a, a love for, for your uh, livelihood and your community and, and your beloved Bay and all this. And then it, it's, uh, you quickly found out that it, not, it wasn't just this cultural thing where they didn't want you speaking up. It was, there was also this situation where oh, there yeah. were too many people who were, were financially benefiting. The whole thing, you know, and uh, because I know it's 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 a it's easily said in these United States. It's a corporate, it's a corporate uh, uh, whole society we have now, and that the corporation is running it. But I guarantee you, if you want to see it down home and see the footprints real plain, you just go down to a small town, Texas, where we lived, and you can see the handprints and the footprints of corporations all over the place. I mean, they were sitting on the school boards. They were sitting on the banks. They were they – were, uh, uh, Every city council, they encouraged them to get in city council, and so and and they were giving you know giving uh, uh, little scholarships here, and they were giving computer systems here, and they were giving police cars there, and defibrillators there, and it's like they were totally bought into the community, and not only that is like the mayors, the the senators, the the constables, everybody had contracts with the company and I, I remember one time as the uh the mayor of the of the county that was supposedly giving them all this tax abatements to bring all of these chemical plants in that were notorious polluters and and he had the uh, construction contract with the main polluter there and it's like they did not want you to wreck the economic bonanza and i i do know just when I called that meeting, it just so happened, unbeknownst to nearly everybody, is that Texas was bringing down the biggest chemical expansion they had ever had. You know, in Texas, we don't do things small. We generally have big anyhow, and this was going to be huge. And and there had not been a single solitary word asked about the environmental um, issues uh, associated with this chemical plant that had actually been kicked out of Taiwan. They were so bad, and they were bringing them right there and sticking them on our bay. And, uh, uh, you know, so that was what I was, I was up against, and predominantly anybody that had joined my little group for a, a, a one meeting by the next meeting they were gone they would even write me letters and say my husband does not want me in here he said it's too controversial and uh he makes he's making me get out of here and and you know and all my board members i couldn't have any board members they all quit the company threatened to sue everybody and everybody was scared to death so pretty much i was uh on my own and and so then how did that play out and where did, what were your next steps after that well i i found out and in this is probably pretty typical down here in texas that every if you work inside the box say for instance you're asking for the petitions you're asking for the hearings you're asking you know trying to uh, Put a file a lawsuit. You're you're trying to talk to Congress people. You know, I know the the uh, head 
of the EPA was the man who was the campaign manager of the senator running for president of the United States. It was Phil Graham. Mm -hmm. He was running for president. He was getting all the credit for bringing this huge corporation down here. And and his uh, campaign manager was ahead of the EPA. And I mean, they were like rubber stamping anything they wanted they were going to get. And uh, so, so you find out real quick it's going to come down to either you quit what you're doing and realize it's too big. They're, they, they, you know, they've got you cornered on every angle. There are more lawyers, more people, more money, and you just, you know, and, and as one one uh, environmental activist told me, he said, uh, it's a done deal. You need to pat yourself on the shoulder and say, well, I did the best I could and just and, and let it go. You, you're, you're at the end, of the, the end of the parade. It's over with. And I was like, they are not going to get my bait. They will, I, like, drew a line. There was a line I drew in my head and then in my heart, and I said, they're not going to get it. And... Uh, and I remember that activist, he said, well, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And, uh, and off the top of my head, I like <laughs> said, uh, I'm going to do a hunger strike. And he just cracked up laughing. He said, nobody in Texas does hunger strikes. He <laughs> said, now they might do them in California, but they <laughs> certainly don't do them in Texas. And I said, I'm going to do a hunger strike. And I, I, and I knew enough about human human character and also my own character that if I did not move on that idea, that gut stinked idea, if I didn't move on it, if I slept on it, if I called together five people and talked about it, I would not do the hunger strike. You know, and I would wake up in the morning saying, Thank God I didn't do the hunger strike So I knew I had to move quickly. So I did. I called up the only reporter I knew, and I said, I'm doing a hunger strike, and she said, when? And I said, right now. <laughs> and I did. I started a hunger strike on a shrimp boat in the uh, Lavaca Bay, and I was so stupid about hunger strikes, which I knew nothing about, but I was so stupid, I didn't even realize you had to let people know you are on a hunger strike. <laughs> and so I was out on a boat in the bay with no phone, and the, and the only one who really knew I was on the hunger strike was a chemical company, and they regularly would send down their corporate executives and their engineers, and every morning they would get out of their little sedans and they would come down to the fish house, and they would look at me and they said, now, don't she look stupid. Everybody in town is talking about how stupid you look. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to stay on this hunger strike. And... Uh, and the amazing thing about that is I had very little support. I had very little media attention. I knew nothing about hunger strikes. And I got exactly what I wanted in two weeks. All I had to stay on that hunger strike was two weeks. And it it was uh, mind-boggling. It was like I had stumbled on a universal secret and I think it's about commitment. It's about putting everything you got on the line with an intention. And I believe, I truly believe you can create action. 
All right, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here. I'm speaking with Diane Wilson, and we're discussing her book, Diary of an Eco-Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. So you said you got uh, everything you wanted. Tell us about that. What what was accomplished well, by well, the actually, hunger strike? Oh, this was the first hunger strike I ever did, and, and actually on this one, I was just asking for something, something simple, and believe it or not, it was federal law, but you know, it, it's like people really, people have got this mistaken idea that these laws that are on the book are actually enforced and that people abide by them. It's like, no, I mean, that's the biggest joke. I remember uh, this lawyer who, who was working a little bit po- pro bono for me. I mean, he would crack up laughing. He said, yeah, they're supposed to do all of these environmental impact studies, which was federal law, and it meant if you were a big enough project and you had federal projects involved and you could cause damage, you're supposed to do an environmental impact study. was like, he said, well, there's not a snowball's chance in hell of, that, of, of them having to do that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Formosa was saying it publicly. It was front-page headlines. There's no way they were going to do that. And that hunger strike changed that whole thing, and it changed EPA's uh, demand for one. And what that, what that environmental impact study actually did was it stopped the process that Formosa was doing. So, and I, I guarantee you, they were building a $3 billion chemical plant as fast as they could do it. Everybody was involved, thousands of workers, and it kind of brought it to a halt because when you got to do a federal environmental impact study, suddenly you have to get all the agencies involved, Fish and Wildlife, National Marine Fisheries, you name it, they were involved, and you had to have these huge public hearings. So actually what I accomplished with that is not only making them abide by the law that they were supposed to do, but it stalled for time, and it really drug it out. And matter of fact, that's when they really got perturbed at me because these chemical companies, they're already ready for their product. They've already got contracts in line. They're already setting up building for the workers, and suddenly everything gets stalled. I mean, it's like a sandcastle, and suddenly everything starts shaking, and that's when they really, really got mad. And uh, I know the second hunger strike I was on against Formosa, I was trying to stop them from building because they were they were frantic to, to keep building. So I did a hunger strike to stop their building, and uh, I had a helicopter land in the front yard of my house, <laughs> shot at the dog, killed the oh, dog, wow. shot at the house, shot at my mother-in-law, and uh, and I remember we we called the sheriff to uh, tell him to come down there that there was a there was somebody there's a helicopter out there and there there was a gunman in it and he was shooting at the house and that sheriff would not come down and finally uh, uh, it's my ex husband now but it's, <laughs> he was my husband he said well I'm fixing to take a gun and I'm fixing to go out and find it and so that brought the sheriff and the sheriff came down on his good sweet time and he basically said oh that wasn't nobody out there that was just my husband having a vietnam uh flashback 
But he turned around and looked at me, and he said, I guarantee you, if you ever get sick, we're going to lock you up so far, you're never going to get out. And it's like, that was the uh, consensus of the whole county, that I was a big troublemaker and that I was wrecking the economic bonanza, and nobody liked me. Wow, that, that's got to be a, a lonely and somewhat uh, frightening uh, feeling, but it, it didn't stop you. No, uh, no, no it, it, it didn't, and, and uh, predominantly because what I was fighting for was the best part of myself. And if I had stopped fighting that, I would have left. I would have lost the best part of myself, you know. And 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 when you're doing this, you know, and it, it got where, you know, eventually, you know, I had a lawyer for a little bit, and then even he sold out and went with the, uh, you know, the the chemical company hired him. So I didn't even have a lawyer anymore. I had nobody at all. And so uh, when you're totally by yourself. The only thing you can count on is your own integrity about what you're doing. So I had to keep that foremost in my mind at all time. It was the integrity, the, uh, you know, and I, I, for me, the bay was alive. It was who I was. There was no boundaries, no walls. You know, I, I, I remember I could go out shrimping in the bay, and I literally could feel like the, molecule, the molecules in my skin would separate, and I could feel the wind and the water, and almost like the whole boat of the CB would just kind of move in. It was We were just like this one just slow-moving wave out there on the bay, and uh, I, 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 I love the bay. I, I, I could not, I could not. Stop. I could not. You uh, in the Bay were sort of like uh, like one. You, you had kind yeah, of become one. Yeah, we definitely were. Uh, uh, I know uh, my, my uh, great-grandfather was a, was a Cherokee Indian, and he kind of raised his family. There was a little teepee out on Blackjack Island. So one side of my family was, uh, was uh, uh, Cherokee, and then I had... The other side of my family, they were, believe it or not, they were holy rollers, you know, and they believed in speaking in tongues and raising the dead and all that, you know, and the demons out there. So I had a real uh, uh, taste and a real introduction to the invisible part of the world. So I knew everything that that you see is not all that is out there. And so I definitely felt very connected to the bay and to the water and uh for me there was no difference and if and like i said if i lost that day i it was me it was a part of me that i was losing mm-hmm. yeah and i i love the way you talk about your experiences out there on the bay uh as a shrimper i i've had no experience with anything like that but i really felt almost like I was there and I felt like I could just really understand that that love and so what are are some of the ways that that your your shrimp boat experience uh came in handy when when you were went after these uh polluters some of the the lessons you learned out there on the boat how you applied that to uh battling them well i i, I tell you what it's uh made uh 
the way I go after these corporation and these chemical plants, it pretty much uh, 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 defines how I do it. I'm very intuitive. I'm very spontaneous. And uh, and I and another thing is is I align with death, you know, and fear. And a matter of fact, I always said, when you smell the fear, you know you're on the right path. Mm-hmm. Because when you're out there on that bay, you're always. And I, I can't tell you how many times you're so close to almost sinking, to almost dying, and there has been so many of my kinfolks and so many of the community that has died out there that you are, you're, you're not very far from death at any point. And so I have always aligned with it. And, you know, I, I can remember fishing out there, and the boat was so full of water, the fish were swimming all over. You know, I, just when I had a skiff, I was out there in a skiff, and the boat was... Uh, almost level with water, and all the fish were swimming. And the only way you could keep your boat from sinking is you would rip it up, pull out every stopper, and you had to run all the water out, and then you would start fishing again. And, you know, and a lot of times the waves would go over, and a lot of times you nearly sunk. And, and so I, 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 uh, I aligned with that. I, I aligned with death. I aligned with fear. And I wasn't afraid of it. I used it. And so when I would do actions, the fear would not stop me at all. I just sometimes knew I was probably close to my right path. And I know a lot of people, a lot of activists, I can't tell you how many activists come up to me when I speak, and they would come up to me and they just say, but I'm afraid. And I'm like, well, that's a good sign, you know, because... That's when you know you're close because when 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 you when you don't feel the least bit of fear, then you're not really rocking the boat. You're not causing anybody any kind of problems, and it's just status quo happening on and on and on. And uh, so it's that spontaneous gut action and on the edge. And I do all my actions like that, and I think that's what uh, corporations get very very nervous with me because I don't have a plan. I trust this energy that I'm using because it's, it's a different type of energy. Like when you're on a bay and you're trying to think like the shrimp or think like the fish or, or trying to feel like what the tide's doing or the moon's doing, you can kind of feel it in your gut. And it's a different type of energy to intellectualize the whole thing, and that's where I moved from, and and it's got a wonderful, a wonderful sense of serendipity. Uh, I remember one time I was, <laughs> it was after I got, I got I got jailed big time, and I went to court, and they called me number one, uh, 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 number one enemy in the whole state of Texas, and and I remember the DA he got in front of me, and he said. Now, Miss Wilson, he said, I just want to know how you get all your money, how you manage to do all this. <laughs> and, you know, and I just told him the real truth. And I'm like, well, it's kind of serendipity. And, <laughs> and he got so mad because I said it was kind of like serendipity, and, and it is. It's like, I have no idea how I do this stuff. I really don't. It's just you trust it, you step out, and it starts working. 
Yeah, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Diane Wilson. And we're talking about her book, Diary of an Eco-Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. And so, yeah, you mentioned you went to jail, and that was uh, quite uh, interesting to read in the book. And uh, let's... Uh, Talk about what it is that you ended up going to jail for, and then uh, talk about some of the lessons you learned from all of that. But yeah, you, uh, this is where you decided uh, that you were going to chain yourself to uh, the tower at the Dow Chemical oh, Union yeah. Carbide. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I had uh, actually I had been on a hunger strike for thirty days. I was doing it in support of the people of Bhopal, and because uh, I had I had been to India and I had a really really uh, close connection with them, I felt uh, we were very, very, very similar. And uh, especially since we both had a Union Carbide facility that had uh, blew up and released all of this. But I had uh, been on a hunger strike for 30 days. I had my pickup right in front of that chemical plant. And every day I was there and I was passing out flyers to the workers. And uh, and, and then uh, finally the, they, the uh, Bhopal network uh they wanted to end the hunger strike and they were they were really worried about me being on hunger strike that long so they they kept saying uh Diane you really need to get off this you really need to get off it with Diane please please get off this and so i decided well since i'm going off the hunger strike i need to change the whole setup and i was just sitting there looking at that plant and it just dawned on me is like I wonder if i can get over their fence and and you know what? Because it's got at about an eight foot fence, and it was after nine eleven. And you know, you 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 were reading in the in the uh, there was legislation, and they were trying to get these chemical plants to reduce their stockpile because you know they said a terrorist could get out there and they could shoot them these chlorine tanks, and they could blow it up, and they could be a terrorist. And and they were there was real concern, and the chemical plants said, "Oh, not to worry, because we got these huge fences, and nobody's going to get over our fences." And I was looking at that fence, and I'm like, "I wonder if I can get over that fence." <laughs> and uh, I was looking at, it and I said, "I'll figure I can." And so what I did was I went out there on the beaches. You know, there's a lot of rigs out there in the in the Gulf, and all the hard hats fly off the workers' hat, heads, and they come up on the beaches. So I picked up a hard hat. I got a pair of sunglasses that looked like uh, safety glasses and a pair of jeans, and I had a banner, a yellow banner over my shoulder that kind of looked like, a, uh, you know, like a rain gear out of a chemical plant. Mm-hmm. And I had chains, and I had a, a stainless steel pipe, and I just took off down the road the next morning, and I had a union carbide workers think I was another worker. They gave me a lift straight into the plant. I wait until they went to their unit. I climbed right over that fence, scaled that uh, about 75-foot tower, and I was up there a good two hours, and they never even knew I was up there. And uh, then uh, finally they, they caught wind of it, and uh, some reporters came out, or you, you had called a reporter? Oh, or? yeah, yeah. I was, at, I was at the very top, and about uh, daybreak, and, and like I said, I'd been there two hours. Nobody knew it. Nobody ever looked up. I was just sitting in their tire watching everybody, watching the security, watching the workers, watching the plant manager all come in their little offices. Nobody bothered to look up. And... Uh, 
and finally I called that uh, I called a reporter from uh, Houston, and believe it or not, that guy come all the way from Houston, which is a three-hour drive, and he got up there and started taking pictures. And the security truck went looked looked at that guy with the, taking the pictures, and they get real perturbed about that, you know. So he's like, "What do you think you're doing taking pictures?" And that reporter pointed his finger at me on that tower and said, that woman on the tower. And I stood up and waved, and you all talk about things started happening. (laughs) And uh, it kind of went kind of crazy. They brought in ambulances. They brought in sheriff cars. They brought in FBI. They brought in Homeland Security. I can't tell you how many vehicles were out there. And the thing is, they couldn't figure out how to get me down and I, so eventually they got uh, this 200-foot crane, these huge cranes you see in these cities sometimes, and they brought it all the way from the back end of the plant. Then they put a four-man SWAT team all dressed <laughs> in black with the helmet, with the baton, with the boots, and they got up there and uh, they proceeded to just whack me over pretty good. And, and, and the thing is, it was I think they were embarrassed because, I was I was in stainless steel chains and I had a stainless steel pipe from my shrimp boat and I was chained to the top of that tower and you know what they brought up there to try to get me down with they brought a pair of scissors and I looked at those guys and I'm like that is not going to get me out of there so I, I think it made them kind of mad kind of embarrassed them so you know and there was all those people standing down below looking up like. Can you get her down? And uh, so they were, I mean, they started whacking me with the batons and jerking on my arms and stepping on my legs. And, and then every once in a while they said, I'm going to get some of that, uh, I'm going to get some of that spray and spray you in the face. And I'd say, well, just hop to it. And, uh, but eventually uh, it took eight hours, but they finally got me down, put me in two straight jackets, threw me in the bottom of that uh, crane and whisked me down, threw me in jail, and went to trial, and they gave me everything they could give me. They gave me 180 days in jail. Yeah, and so, yeah, it wasn't really uh, because of the high-powered attorneys that uh, they uh, had to uh, use against you and because it seemed that... uh, Nobody was really too sympathetic uh, to to your cause in the community, and and also the the way the the laws are set up, and you you really uh, wasn't. It didn't seem like you got a real uh, fair trial. There were certain no, things that were I don't, not allowed. I don't think so at all. And, and matter of fact, it was uh, they uh, the 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 you know the 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 DA they passed what they call a motion of limine, and that means that you the I could not bring up any issue about why I was there. So they banned any conversation about Bhopal, about the environment, about anything at all. It could just be that there was a woman trespassing. And uh, and so, you know, and, and that huge big banner that I had draped that said, uh, Dow responsible for Bhopal, I mean, they wrapped that thing in a tight little ball and wrapped it around with rope and rope and rope so nobody could even see what the whole issue was about. It was just that there was a woman up in a tire trespassing. And, and, and matter of fact, I think it took two hours for them 
to throw the entire book at me, and when they came out, they said, it's just too bad there wasn't a, a tougher sentence because they would have given that, me that one, too. Yeah, and, and, and so there was, yeah, no information was allowed that would have given a reason for why you took your action, to the, the justification for why you were doing that. Just was The jurors not were not allowed to hear any of that. Uh, to, so just that you were this crazy woman that wanted to hang off their tower and endanger everybody. <laughs> you know, that's the, basically that's the way pretty, it was. Pretty much it. That was pretty much it. And, uh, and, and like I said, I, I appealed it, but it was, uh, we knew, you know, because I had a, I had a lawyer, and, and uh, he said, we don't have a snowball's chance in hell to win in this appeal, but it was, uh, we, we did it anyhow, and it was enough for me to, uh, uh, by that time I had written my first book, and I was actually on uh, the part of the book tour, in the, in the, my book publisher was in uh, White River Junction, Vermont, it was Chelsea Green Publishing, and uh, I was in my publisher's office when the sheriff called and said, Okay, Diane, you lost your appeal. Now just get on back to Texas and go to jail. And I said, I don't believe so. I said, Warren Anderson, who is the former CEO of Union Carbide, has had a warrant for 12 years, and nobody's arresting him. And I'm like, so I'm not going to go to jail either. And I said, <laughs> matter of fact, I think I'm going to track that guy down and see if I can get a hold of him. And so that's what I proceeded to do. I was... I was on that book tour, and I got my publisher, who was extremely agreeable about it, and uh, and I found out where Warren Anderson, where he had his little gated communities, and where he had his little bungalows, and, and he had a place on Vera Beach in Florida, and he had a place uh, at the Hamptons, and so and, and then he had this golf course, this really fancy golf course he went to all the time, and so I just started tracking him down. I went to Vero Beach, and he, he had a gated community with a gate. I uh, went right through that thing, went straight to his house. He wasn't there, and uh, uh, so I left uh, letters, and I put, posted signs in his letter, I mean, in his yard showing, uh, I think, uh, his arrest warrants. I, I put it on a little poster and crammed it in his yard, and then I went to, when I went to the Hamptons, uh, outside of New York, I went to the golf course, went looking for him there, and I guarantee you, they took one look at me and booted me out of there real quick. And then I went to his uh, million-and-a-half-dollar bungalow <laughs> that was about 10 miles from the Atlantic Ocean in, in the Hamptons. And, uh, matter of fact, right across the street and this kind of role in the state was uh, the executive director of uh, 60 Minutes. He lived there. Mm. And... Uh, and I, I, I had, I really had no idea that Warren Anderson was uh, there because you never saw any movement. No one. I was there two days. Nobody came and went. Nobody, you know, rattled the the blinds. Nobody wiggled the the, the curtains. And uh, it was when I was there the second day, and I was actually talking to a little uh, reporter with a with a little uh, uh, tape recorder, and he was interviewing me, and lo and behold, here come Warren Anderson. He come up <laughs> barreling out of his house, and he brought his wife, and they 
came up to me and they said, what was I doing there? And they was they, they said I was a professional environmentalist and I, I didn't know what I was talking about. He said he had been to India. He had did everything he could and they just bulldozed everything he tried to do over there. And he said, uh, you know, and, and he kept insisting I was this uh, professional activist that made my living doing this type of stuff. And I <laughs> said, well, I'm a shrimper from Seadrift and you got a a Union Carbide facility in my hometown. And he said, there is no Union Carbide plant in Cedrift. But I said, why, there sure is. It's right outside of town. And he said, no, there isn't. And I said, why, there sure is. And so we got in a big discussion on that. And then he happened to notice that little reporter had that tape recorder around and you ought to talk about a man getting frantic and he chased that kid i mean this is supposed to be an old man so old he he can't be arrested he was chasing that kid down the road for that for that uh tape recorder and he never caught him but uh but after that, I mean, he he and his wife shouted at me to uh, get away, and he hopped in his car, and he and his wife uh, just uh, shot on down the road. Well, so yeah, yeah, g- great, great story there. And and you, but you eventually did go to jail. And uh, your jail experience, like like most people's, was uh, far from pleasant. Yet you pulled some powerful lessons insights and 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 wisdom uh from it can, can you share some of that with us of, of, i just found that so compelling reading that in the book well i i think first of all is people have no concept about county jails they think about prisons but they think i think most people's idea of a county jail is maybe you're there for dwi drunken drunken intoxication and you're there you sleep it out overnight and they let you out and it's they have no idea the amount of people that are in these county jails uh i think texas if it was a country we arrest more people than China does. I know Harris County, where I was, which is around Houston, there is more deaths than Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, that over 50% of the people who are in county jails have never saw a lawyer, have never saw a judge. They don't have bail money to get out, so they're stuck there. Some of them have been stuck there a year. Sometimes, I remember one time, we, you know, I farmed this little Texas jail project once I got out of jail because it was so horrendous. And I, I remember one time we had a DA out of one of these counties call us and say, while they lost an inmate, and did we know how to get a hold of that inmate? Did we know how to find that guy? <laughs> and, I mean, the the amount of people that die in these county jails because they withhold uh, medical attention, and it's, uh, and it's people with heart uh, problems, people with uh, seizures, people with epilepsy, people with diabetes, Any, anything you care to a medical problem you have, and you get arrested, and you even, say for instance, have your medicine with you for whatever reason, and I think it's just pure de-meanness, it's, they withhold it. And, and matter of fact, they usually, when I was there, and I've, I've been arrested 50 times, every single time, 
there was a uh, medical problem, first of all, they don't want you. There's only the only way to get a hold of anybody is a buzzer, and they tell you right off the bat, do not press the buzzer. You get in big trouble for pressing that buzzer. And if you do, if if you start having a real problems, they'll tell you to drop a farm. And I mean, you know, your 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 you know your radio station is called down the rabbit hole. It's like that's what it's like to put a farm out. It's like down the rabbit hole. You never know when you're ever going to get a response, if any. And so a lot of them, I mean, uh, like like very recently, there was like a, I think she was like 24 years old. She had two children. I think she was in because of a traffic ticket. And she started having seizures. She had seizures for 10 hours. And she died hanging off of her bunk. And she flat died because they would not give her. And she had the medicine. The family was trying to get a hold of them to make them please give her her medicine. And they just, you know, it's a lot of meanness and cruelty in these jails, a lot of it. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's horrendous. And, And you talk about that. Pretty much all, all of the women in there are, are poor, uh, mostly uh, black and brown. Mostly black or, or, or uh, Hispanic, you bet. Yeah. Almost 80%. And it's like, what is wrong with this country that we have almost all the minorities in jail? And also 50% of the people in the county jails are mentally ill. That's is where we put our mentally ill. We jail them. Mm-hmm. And then you just talk about the, the also the, the anguish that so many of them have about their children because often they're, oh. they're taken in and they have no idea where their children in. They have in. none. I, I mean, if, if, for example, if, uh, for, for example, I know this, this one instant, it was when they, you know, the, the sheriff was running for re-election. And so if you had a traffic ticket you didn't pay or maybe you did pay it, maybe the computer was messed up or for some reason, if, and if there is like an old outstanding warrant, they'll go through and no matter what you're doing, street or standing on street corner, if you're in your bedroom in your pajamas with no shoes or anything, they will jerk you up, throw you in the county jail, and you have no idea where your kids are. A lot of times the women who are arrested like that, is they lose their job because they can't reach anybody. The, uh, many times the state takes their children because there's no one to take care of their children. And I, I think of all the things that the women just wept over. I mean, it was like every night, every night it was the same thing. It was their children and what was happening and who was taking care of them and did the state have them and you know, and, and, and then many of them lost their jobs by the time they got out. And the only way, because they were poor and they couldn't afford bail, is the only way they could get out eventually was to accept a plea bargain. And that way you have to say you're guilty and then you have to abide by their rules. And if you miss one one instance of talking to your probation officer, they would sling you right back in jail, and you would be started all over again. It was a nightmare. 
Uh, KUCI in Irvine, this is Robert Larson. We're speaking with Diane Wilson, and we're talking about her book, Diary of an Eco-Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. And Diane, do you have a website or anything that you want to let us know about? Well, I know there's, uh, we have Texas uh, Jail Project, uh, texasjailproject.org, and that's our little uh, jail project we started. And then also uh, I have a, a group with all the injured wor- workers uh, in the Texas uh, on the chemical, atomic, and oil industries on the Gulf Coast, and it's uh, texasinjuredworkers.com. Excuse me. Okay, and so we're just about out of time here. Diane, would, um, what would you like to just put out there for somebody who is uh, seeing something like this going on and feeling like they they want to do something and, and re- really uh, maybe not sure? I know I would say to them to read your book and get inspired there, but what would you say right now? I, I, I think they just have to step out. You just have to to literally do it. Sometimes it's as simple as picking up a phone, calling a meeting, and just going with it. You do not have have to have the organization or the people or the money or the whole, you know, you don't have to have the whole thing planned out to begin. Just begin. It's as simple as that. I think so, what I, from reading your book, what I get is that, yeah, this is what has worked quite well for you, is not planning things to death, just going with with your gut, but uh, but also w- with wisdom. And, and you seem to just have some some innate wisdom that it, it might seem like the initial uh, um, display of what's going on is a little bit, weird or funky or whatever but it seems like your your wisdom takes you to a place where it does seem to work out and you're following that that intuition and i and i think as we discussed earlier it comes from your uh history uh, being a shrimper and and having to rely on intuition and so i think everybody's got intuition and we get it in different ways and um that that would be a scene to find that within yourself that is very true that's 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 excellent advice everybody i i truly believe everybody has it and we just and 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 we really haven't lost it we just need to cultivate it back because it's it's there okay and and before we got to go any anything you're working on right now that you want to let us know about uh well i am working uh with the texas injured workers and we're uh there there is no place for these workers to go to the whistleblowers, like on uh, the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon, you know, what if there had actually been places where these whistleblowers could go to? There is no place they can go to. They're welcome. The industry tells them you report a release, you report a safety violation, you're going to lose your bonus, and you can get fired. So uh, just remember the workers in these facilities. Okay, and, and then there was what's the web address for that organization? Uh, TexasInjuredWorkers.org. TexasInjuredWorkers.org. Well, Diane Wilson, I want to say thank you so much for what you're doing and for writing the book and spending the time with us today. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Okay, uh, you take care.
Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, yes, Diane Wilson and that book again, Diary of an Eco-Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. We've got more uh, great uh, public affairs coming up in just a couple minutes here. Matt Kaplan is ready to go with his usual uh, Thursday early evening fair, and that is Counterspin and Planetary Radio. I'll remind you once more that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at kuci.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. Okay, so yeah, this is Robert Larson saying I'll be talking to you next week here on Out the Rabbit Hole. It is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at kuci.org. I'm going to leave you with a little music here from Wayne Kramer.